I invite you to join me in prayer. Let's, uh, let's come and let's just ask God to focus our minds and just to hear his word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, you have said that the entrance of your word brings light. Lord, not just the speaking of it or the explaining of it, but the entrance of it. And Lord, we come to you tonight confessing our sin and recognizing that there are many barriers in our lives to the entrance of your word. Spiritual darkness, hard hearts, distracted minds, concerns for the things of this world. And we know too the work of the evil one who is even working tonight in this place. And so far we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the truth of your word, that you would pierce our hearts and that the word would find its way into our lives. And that we would be transformed by what we learn in this passage and in this teaching from Jesus. And we pray this for your great glory and for the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, Amen. A couple of months ago, I came across the following news report. Uh, which read as follows. The rapture occurred March 31st, 2005 at 9.43 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time and took both people on the planet whose theology was exactly correct. Dan Wilson of Ottawa, Canada was snatched away while sleeping. He spent years refining his eschatological scheme, says his wife. Just last week, He told me he had it all right, but I still disagreed with him on a minor point. I regret that now. (laughs) Rejna Thanawala of New Delhi also experienced the rapture, say friends. She knew exactly what the books of Revelation and Daniel meant, they say. Sadly, none of us listened to her. In a surprise, Tim LaHaye, the author of the Left Behind series of books, says he was, quote, slightly wrong on the subject of the beast and was left behind. Other prophecy experts say they too botched minor points in their end times charts. Looks like we'll have to stay and wait this one out, said one disappointed pastor. Now I hasten to add, I really do hasten hasten to add, that this was a fictitious report. Uh, Indeed, if I tell you that it comes from a a website called LARP News, uh, you would gather that. Anyway, this was a spoof story. Uh, However, what struck me was that what the report feeds off of, the, the sort of springboard for the whole idea, is actually certain common notions that we Christians have about end times theology. In particular, the idea that end times teaching is but for a few keen being believers. That is for just some of us who take on the subject as a sort of hobby, and in some cases as a hobby horse. It's really for those who take no end of pleasure in endlessly refining their eschatological time charts. And in short, many of us believe that end times teaching is a subject for expert Christians, not for laymen. However, if that is our idea about end times teaching, I would like to submit to you this evening that it is just plain wrong. 
Because in Scripture, the coming kingdom is presented as a subject for everyone. In fact, just for example, Jesus frequently taught this extraordinary subject to very ordinary believers. In fact, he spent most of his time teaching it to his disciples who were uneducated fishermen. And what is more, he fully expected those believers to not only understand what he was teaching, but to apply its truths to their everyday lives. And so as we come to study this passage, Luke 17, 20 to 37, and I trust you'll be reopening your Bibles too there, as we come to consider the coming kingdom, we do so in the knowledge, I hope, that this is a subject for everyone. It is a subject for every believer, however well you know the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, and it is especially a subject for unbelievers, for those who really are not living in light of the coming kingdom at all, the present kingdom or the future and final kingdom. So this is for all of us, and Jesus has something to say to each of us, I believe, this evening. And let me just summarize up front something of what Jesus is saying. First of all, Jesus wants us to grasp certain facts about the coming kingdom. That is to say, he wants us to understand certain things conceptually and intellectually. And we'll deal with that under our first heading, Kingdom Misunderstandings. Additionally, we'll also learn that Jesus intends us to live in light of the coming kingdom. That he wants there to be a practical outcome to this knowledge that we have. And we'll think about that under kingdom warnings. So that's where we're going, and let's just dive right in with kingdom misunderstandings. Now, I imagine that, like me, you've had the experience of totally, and sometimes frequently, misunderstanding things. Uh, just completely missing the boat about something or other. And usually, thankfully, it happens in very insignificant areas of our life. Very unimportant, small details of our lives. However, sometimes we misunderstand things of quite significant importance. For example, maybe we are a student and we're, we totally misunderstand a subject that we're just about to get examined upon. Okay, some of you know the experience. Well, when we talk about important subjects, when we talk about significant teaching, you really cannot rank anything higher than the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus is concerned that we understand correctly the nature and dynamics and dimensions of this coming kingdom. Consequently, Jesus is also concerned that we don't misunderstand it, that we don't have a wrong framework in our heads when we think about the kingdom. Indeed, he's so concerned about this that from verses 20 to 25, he painstakingly takes time to correct two common mistakes that were just right in his day. So this is important that we understand correctly the kingdom. Jesus thought this was crucial. Now, I want to outline to you the two errors that were prevalent in Jesus' day, and then we're going to apply them, hopefully, to our situation, because actually there are lines of application. So here is the first misunderstanding. Number one, the misunderstanding that the present kingdom is one of pomp and power. Now, this was a common view in the day when Jesus lived. And it was certainly the view of the Pharisees 
who have asked Jesus this question about the coming kingdom. And the idea was that when the kingdom of God would arrive, it would come with pomp and pageantry, it would come with success and splendour, it would come with prestige and power. And the belief also was that when it would arrive in this way, it would be accompanied by manifest signs. That there would be trumpet blasts. That there would be signs in the heavens, perhaps. The marching into Jerusalem of Messiah's army. The overthrow of the Roman occupiers. The enthronement of the king of the Jews. And, of course, the Jewish people, the nation, in the victory tour. This was the prevailing view, this was the popular view, and this was the Pharisees' view in Jesus' time. In fact, there was only one problem with this view, and it was this, that it wasn't Jesus' view. And incidentally, it's always a bad thing, there's always a problem with their theology if Jesus doesn't share it. And what Jesus is saying here is something totally different about the kingdom. And what Jesus says is that the present kingdom is completely devoid of all such pomp. In verse 20, when addressing the Pharisees, he says, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. And the words careful observation have the idea of sort of spying for signs, of kind of having the binoculars out, looking to the horizon for manifest signs that would indicate to us that the kingdom is on the near horizon. And Jesus says, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your energy. Because the present kingdom isn't going to come with these extravagant notions and signs. And more to the point, Jesus goes on to add, you need to open your eyes, folks, to what's standing right in front of you. And Jesus says uh, in verse 20. Uh, one that they shouldn't be saying, here it is, or there it is, as if it's coming around the corner. And then he goes on to say that the kingdom of God is among them. Now, I think that's almost certainly the correct translation of this verse. You'll see in the NIV, uh, it opts for within you, and that could be a possible translation. Uh, however, it seems to me that it would be strange for Jesus to be saying to these Christ-denying, kingdom-defying Pharisees that the kingdom of God is within them. That would be a funny thing to say. Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels that what is within the Pharisees is wickedness, not the kingdom. But what Jesus, I think, is saying is that the kingdom is in their midst. It's in the midst of them. It's in their presence. It's within their proximity and within their grasp. And the reason that the kingdom is within their grasp is that the king is in their presence. That's how the kingdom is among them, because the king is present. As such, if you really think about this, the whole line of questioning and argument is superfluous and rather stupid. The king is among them. They're asking, when's the kingdom coming? Just imagine that you arrange a visit with Buckingham Palace for the Queen to come and visit. Perhaps you're opening some new building premises uh, in Edinburgh and she's going to uh, come to the inaugural event and you're at Waverley Station and the Royal Train pulls up at the platform 
And out comes her entourage of people, and then eventually the queen herself comes out, and the next thing you know, you're standing face to face with the queen. Now, what are you going to say? Well, imagine you said to her something like this. Uh, Ma'am, when's royalty arriving? Nice royal train, but when's the kingdom coming to town? That would be dumb question of the year, 2008. And somebody would be crazily whispering in your ear, the kingdom's in town. Right? Because the queen is here. Royalty is present in the flesh. See, here is Jesus. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And He's in town. He's come all the way from heaven to earth. He's come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He's standing in their midst and He's speaking to them. And what have they got to say to Jesus? All they can ask is, when's the real royal train coming? When's it going to pull in? Jesus. But you see, the reason they miss the point, the reason they miss the Messiah is because they're looking for a different kind of present kingdom. They're looking for a kingdom of pomp and power and therefore they don't recognize Jesus as that king. Because Jesus doesn't come that way. In a few days' time, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem not on a chariot, but on a donkey. And what they don't grasp is what Jesus explains in verse 25, that first, it's an extremely important word in this passage, that first, before his glorification, before his exaltation, first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. For Jesus to be the Messiah King, he must first of all be the meek Savior. You see, here's the problem. We are sinful people. And for Jesus, for God, to accept us as subjects into his kingdom, he first of all has to pardon and forgive us for the fact that we've rebelled against the king and we've rebelled against the kingdom. That's why he goes first to the cross. That's why first he sheds his own blood, his own body is broken on a tree for your sins and for mine. So that you and I might be brought tonight out of the realm of darkness and into the kingdom of light if we haven't yet made that transfer. And so it's the crown of thorns before the crown of gold. It's humiliation before exaltation. It's suffering before glory. And what I'm wondering this evening is whether everyone in this room has grasped this order of things, has grasped this dynamic, or whether like the Pharisees, we have misunderstood this subject. Or never understood this subject. That Jesus suffered first for our sins. That's the kind of Messiah he came to earth to be. And that we must therefore respond now by bowing the knee and by pledging allegiance and putting our trust in this servant, suffering, substitutionary king who died in our place. I urge you to do that tonight if you haven't done that already. It's the most important step that you can make in your life. And it's the first step you will ever make in your Christian life. But as we press on, notice a second misunderstanding. And this relates not so much to the present kingdom, but to what we might call the future or full or final manifestation of the kingdom. Uh, 
Incidentally, this is just a very 20-second 20, Kingdom of God 101. All right? uh, God's Kingdom comes, as you read the New Testament, it's very clear, it comes in two stages. If you want to put it that way. It has a dual or it has a twin aspect. It's sometimes called the present-future dynamic. It's sometimes called the already-but-not-yet tension. And we've got to understand that from verse 22 onwards, Jesus is really addressing the future arrival of the kingdom that comes not with suffering, but with glory. And in this case, the misunderstanding he corrects is this, that the future kingdom, and it's just the opposite, will come with secrecy and subtlety. This might seem strange in light of her first point. Didn't the Pharisees expect the kingdom to come with power and pomp? Yes, they did. However, there was also another prevalent idea in the days when Jesus was living. And no doubt the disciples, whom Jesus turns to address now, no doubt they would have heard this idea too. And the thought was this, that the Messiah, when he would come, he would begin his reign incognito. That he would sort of be stashed away in secret. That he would be hidden and tucked away to begin with, waiting for the big moment to be revealed and to lead the armies into Jerusalem. And some Jews in Jesus' day may even have believed that the Messiah was present at this point, but was hidden away, waiting in the wings, waiting backstage. And in such a climate, the rumors of Messiahs here and there was just right. And so Jesus says to his disciples, don't be fooled by those people who say, you know, I think he might be the Messiah, or I think he might be the Messiah. Don't be fooled, says Jesus, because when I come in my full and in my final return, it will be unmistakable. Look at verse 24. It's a a vivid picture that you've maybe never considered about Jesus' second coming. He says, the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. In other words, everyone will see it. I remember more than 10 years ago now, uh, coming back home from a holiday trip in Florida. And as you know, there's often very severe weather there. And in the night that we flew out, there was fierce, fierce thunderstorms. Like I have never seen before and never seen since. And I still remember vividly as we were flying sort of up above it in the plane, looking down and seeing the purple lightning just burning across the whole sky. It was, it was everywhere. It was more impressive, by the way, than anything we saw in any of the theme parks with their light shows. But you know, the point is this. I didn't need to turn to the person next to me and say, by the way, did you see that? Did you notice the, you know, the lightning covering the whole horizon? Of course they saw it. And you see, when Jesus returns, it will be no secret. Nobody next to you will need to nudge you and say, do you think that's the Messiah? It will be clear to every person on the face of this earth. It is going to be evident. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be unmistakable. Brothers and sisters, whatever else we believe about end times theology, whether you're pre-trib, relational, mid-trib, what's the other one? Pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, or if you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. (laughs) We can and we should and we must agree on this, that when Jesus comes back, 
It's going to be unquestionable. It's going to be unmistakable. Isn't that wonderful? And so I trust that we will have our eyes fixed on this future horizon. And I trust also at the same time, we will recognize that we live, as it were, in the present kingdom. We live in this time when the kingdom of God is being proclaimed, when, when the kingdom of God is growing like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of the plants, but it's actually developing and expanding into the biggest tree in the whole of the garden. And you know, we need to have this twin focus. We need to have this dual aspect. And it's not just theoretical. Let me just give you a quick practical application to hopefully get your mind thinking about this. You know, Christians get into trouble when they either lose their focus on the present aspect of the kingdom or when they lose their focus on the future aspect of the kingdom. When they lose their grip on either side of the coin. If they're either present focused and they never think of the future or they're future focused but they never think of the present. You see, if you only grasp the present aspect of God's kingdom, you will be worldly and you will be depressed. You will be worldly because you'll be wholly focused on this world and on the present day. On what the world has to offer you today, now. And as such, you will give little thought to eternal things and you will give scant thought to eternal priorities. Because the future kingdom is just not in your view. Additionally, you will also get very depressed. Because the fact is, as you know, life is often hard. We live in times of trials and temptations. We live in times of struggles with sin, facing suffering. We live in times of doubts and difficulties. That's Monday to Sunday for most of us, isn't it? And if we have no future glory to encourage us, then we're going to struggle in our Christian lives. And we certainly won't realize that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Because we're present focused. On the other hand, you can also fall off the other side of the cliff. You can also be someone who is totally focused on the future coming of Christ and you just get no present theology of the kingdom. And when we do this, we become inauthentic, otherworldly, on another planet. And we also fall ready prey to things like the prosperity gospel. This idea that we should expect health and wealth and just everything perfect now. Because we've got this future focus and we only ever think of the blessings and the glory and the splendor and heaven and we import that back into the present and we have no theology of suffering now, no place for struggle, no place for battle and we come to expect our best life now. And of course, in the end, we're just not biblical and also, we're not really galvanized to meet the real challenges of real life. So I appeal to you this evening that this is no technical issue. That we need to have a good grasp on both sides of the coin, on both sides of the equation. So, that's kingdom misunderstandings. But we need to press on, secondly, to kingdom warnings from verse 27 to 37. And as such, we do make a little bit of a transition because this section is more obviously practical. It's more in our face And Jesus has a very specific application, a a major challenge to come 
at the end of this point. So just stick with this as we follow through. Now in these verses, the spotlight falls clearly and only upon the future. The focus is firmly upon the second appearing, the return of Jesus Christ. And we must be clear about this. And additionally, we must also be clear that as Jesus teaches about this, he's not merely giving us information with which we can, again, fill out our end times charts a little better. Rather, he is giving us information in order to propel us to live differently today. You see, Jesus wants you and I to position our present lives on the basis of his future return. He wants the fact of his future coming to make a difference in the present. And so Jesus says, I want you to prepare now for my return. And here's your motivation. I'm coming again. And I'm not only bringing salvation, but I'm also bringing judgment. And the kind of judgment that I'm bringing is going to be sudden, it's going to be divisive, and it's going to be destructive. So you better get ready to avoid the judgment. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of the best parenting that I received when I was younger. There was no use telling me just to do something. You had to give me the carrot or the stick up front. And Jesus is really using the stick here to some extent, and a bit of the carrot which we'll get to later on. And so he says, as you think about preparing for my future coming, you've got to realize judgment's coming, folks. That it's going to be altogether like the days of Noah and the flood. That it's going to be exactly like the days of Lot and the fire and sulfur that rained down from heaven. These, of course, are the two worst examples in the whole of the Old Testament. And Jesus says the final judgment is going to be as bad as that. So we need to consider some of the parallels here. This may be difficult to think about, but it's very important that we do consider this. First of all, he says, my second coming will be sudden in nature. The destruction on the unrepentant will be swift. It will come out of nowhere when they're not expecting it. Uh, Both of these calamities emphasize the point in verse 27. We read about Noah's contemporaries, that people were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage, right up to the day Noah entered the ark. In other words, they were just doing their ordinary business. Jesus, is, it's interesting this, in other parts of the, of the Old and the New Testament, what is emphasized about Noah's contemporaries and Lot's contemporaries is their sinfulness. How bad they were, how much they deserve judgment. But that's not what Jesus underlines here. What Jesus emphasizes is not their wickedness, but their ignorance. His point is to underline that they didn't see the judgment coming. The day before judgment came, they were dining in the Roxborough Hotel. The day before judgment came, they were drinking on one of the establishments out there on Rose Street. The day before judgment came, they were getting married. And the average ancient cost of whatever £22,000 a year is in those days. They were just going about their daily business, yet they were living as if God didn't exist, as if God didn't matter, and as if judgment wasn't coming. Like many people today. And one day, this little insignificant chap, they thought, Noah, who'd been building this boat for donkey's years, hopped into the boat, the door shut, the heavens opened, and they were swept away 
in a cascade. Just like that. Same deal for Sodom and Gomorrah. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, we're told. And we say, what's wrong with these activities? There's nothing wrong with them. They're just descriptive of the fact that people were going about their everyday business, living their lives with no thought of God and no care in the world. But one day, this guy Lot hightails it out of Sodom, led by an angel, and as soon as he gets out, a firestorm sweeps down and burns the city to a crisp. Just like that. And this isn't just about ancient history. This is about future reality. This is actually future prophecy. Jesus says in verse 26, read this verse carefully, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Verse 30, it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Just like this. Just as much everyday stuff going on. And suddenly, lightning. Jesus returns. History is wrapped up. No more second chances. Sudden. Notice further. Jesus' return will also be divisive. This kingdom, when it comes, will separate people. And Jesus gives two very common examples. He speaks, first of all, of a couple. In verse 34, the closest of human relationships. And he says, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken, and the other will be left. It's the tragic reality, sadly, of a Christian married to a non-Christian on that day. And then as the work colleagues, the two women, verse 35, grinding grain together. We thought about grinding grain this morning. Two women, side by side. And one will be taken and the other will be left. This is the non-Christian work colleague who's at your neighboring workstation. This is the business partner that you have who isn't a Christian. This is close to home. This is close to work. And it's designed to motivate us to get ready. And presumably to, to share the gospel with our friends who aren't ready. It will be sudden. It will be divisive. And thirdly, it will be destructive. It will be like a flood. It will be like a firestorm. These things destroy. Furthermore, destruction is probably the idea of verse 37. And the picture Jesus gives is very difficult to interpret verse. And there's oodles of suggestions as to what it means. The disciples ask, where, Lord? In other words, where will this judgment take place? Where is it going to happen? Where is it going to be located? And Jesus replies, where there is a dead body... There the vultures will gather. Now, it seems that probably the strongest interpretation possibility is that Jesus is saying that where there are people who are spiritually dead, there, like vultures attracted to a dead body, judgment will come. That where there are spiritually dead people, judgment will inevitably fall as vultures will always go after a carcass. It's a dreadful dreadful picture of judgment. It's the last verse, in fact, in this passage. We're left with this picture of vultures, of judgment to compel us. Now, understand this, because this is pretty sobering stuff. 
Understand this, that Jesus doesn't share this information with us in order to depress us. He doesn't give us this information to drive us to despair. Instead, he offers us this insight into the future. He peels back the curtain so that you and I will prepare. So that we will get ready today, tonight, for that future day. So that we will ensure now that we are in the boat with Noah and so be saved. See, there's salvation too in these stories. So that we will ensure that we are on the run with Lot heading out of the city to be saved. So that we will be prepared. So how do we prepare? How do we get ready? How do we ensure that on that day we will be among those who will be saved? Well, Jesus gives many answers in the New Testament. And this is not necessarily the whole answer, but it's a very interesting thing Jesus says in verses 31 and 32. Jesus really puts his finger right on the button with the point that he makes. And what he says essentially is that to prepare, we must relinquish our attachments to the world and the things that the world offers. Look at verse 31. He says, On that day, this is judgment day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods, his stuff inside, should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. See, here are people who on the day of judgment are more interested in their possessions than in their protection. They're more interested in gold than in God. They're more interested in losing their stuff than in losing their soul. I mean, you could hardly believe this, but Jesus says this is reality. And what Jesus is warning his disciples, this is not non-Christians here, this is believers. He says, don't love the stuff of your life more than you love me, more than you love the kingdom. He's saying, Christian, you can't have both God and the world at the same time. You can try. Lot's wife tried to do that. Verse 32 is one of the shortest verses in the Bible. It's one of the most tragic verses in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. Remember her? She thought she could have both. She thought she could be rescued by God and she was halfway out of the city. But she also longed for the things of her life. And she looked back. And by the way, it doesn't just mean, I think this verse makes it really clear, the Old Testament's not so clear, but this makes it very clear that she's not just turning her head in the reverse direction, you know, and God smites her, but she's really gazing back. She's longingly looking back on her precious life, on her precious possessions, her precious security. Certain things which are more important to her than God which are even more important to her than really being rescued from a firestorm. And friends, this is the lure of worldliness. This is the entanglement of love to the things of this world, including money. And it's something that's a huge danger for Christians. It's one of those subtle sins. It's one of those respectable sins. It's one of those things we overlook very easily in ourselves. Our attachment to the world. 
Let me ask you this evening, just how attached are you to the things of this world and to the precious things in your life? Could it be said of us that we live in the world, but that we're not of the world? You see, that's what Jesus said we should be, that we should be part of the world, but we shouldn't be attached to the world. Are we examples to the world, or are we just examples of the world? With really nothing different about what we love and what we live for. We'd be much rather stop back into the house to get the iPhone, the laptop, the cruise tickets, the, you know, the new job, letter. Jerry Packer in his book, Laid Back Religion, makes a devastating assessment of worldliness in the church. He writes this, Does the world around us seek pleasure, profit, and privilege? So do we. We have no readiness or strength to renounce these objectives. For we have Christianity into a mold that stresses happiness above holiness, blessings here above blessings hereafter, health and wealth as God's best gifts, and death, especially early death, not as thankworthy deliverance from the miseries of a sinful world, but as a supreme disaster. Because we love the world. Isn't it right what he's saying of us at many times in our lives? My grandmother died this week. She was 87. And inevitably, and many of you have lost loved ones, you begin to think quite a bit about death and about your own death whenever that would come. And as I was reflecting on this passage as well, I was asking myself the question, you know, if I knew, if I had a certain fix on the fact that I would die in 2008, if I knew that was going to happen this year, how would I feel about that? How would I feel? I mean, deep down, would I feel happy at the prospect? And I don't mean, of course, the prospect of dying, but I mean the prospect of going to be with Christ. Of finally experiencing that wonderful freedom from sin and suffering and all the struggles of this life. And to, to live in the presence of Jesus face to face. Would that thrill my soul? Or would I be gutted at the thought of losing the little things in my life that I think are precious? Losing certain earthly pleasures that are actually so huge in my experience and in my affections. I need to tell you that as I reflected on that there was more conflict in my heart than there should be. There's a little too much looking back than there should be. I wonder what it's like in your heart tonight. God is saying to us this evening, I believe something like this. He's saying to us, stop gripping your life for grim death and give your life afresh to the Lord Jesus Christ or for the first time. There's a challenge this January as you look forward to this year ahead of you, whatever it may hold, 
Are you gripping your life? Or are you giving your life? Surrendering your life to Jesus. You know, it can be so easy, candid as a Christian, to begin in the Christian walk with the I surrender all mentality. With the open hand mentality. Surrendering everything that we are. And yet how easily and how subtly and gradually do we begin to clench our fist or in certain aspects in our lives. And before we know it, we're worldly. A fellow Christian pastor once recounted to me how on one occasion, when he thought he was going to lose something of great value in his life, he had a very significant time of prayer with God. Very significant. And as he prayed, that pastor went through all the significant things that he owned, he possessed, that he had in his life. His wife, his church, his children, his preaching, his hobbies, and all the other treasures that he possessed. And as he went through these areas, he said that in some areas, for the very first time, he surrendered them. He handed them over to God. He stopped clinging them with a fist like that. And he opened his hand and said, God, if you want to take these things from me, if you want to take these away, they're yours. They're not mine. Christian, what will you not give up? What will you not give up for Jesus in your life? What is more important to you than Jesus in your everyday experience? I invite you this week to look around your life, to take 30 minutes somewhere out of your week, and to take an inventory of all the different areas of your life. Go through the little list I just gave there, and whatever else is important to you. And ask yourself honestly, am I surrendering these things for Jesus in light of the present and the future kingdom? Jesus says if we try and save our life, we're going to lose it. But if we lose our life for him, we will find it. And you know, if you're not a Christian this evening, then you too must decisively leave the world. That's what repentance is. And turn to God and put your faith in Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. He is the only one who can save you from the final judgment, which is even worse than a flood, which is even worse than the fire that fell on this city. Turn to trust in Him tonight, whoever we are. Let us lose our lives now and give them to Christ that we might find life in the future coming of Christ's great and glorious kingdom. Let's pray. Father, help us to live in light of the coming kingdom. Thank you, God, that in one sense the kingdom has arrived, has come, that it is already present and it's being proclaimed today because Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago and suffered and died for our sins with great humility. Thank you that since then he has been not only raised to your right hand, but that he is also taking up the throne in the hearts of millions of people across this world. 
Thank you that even tonight he can become king in the heart of some man or some woman. And for your church, Father, we pray that you will help us to faithfully and authentically live in light of both the present and the glorious and final coming of the kingdom. We ask that you would help us by your Spirit to be obedient to your word and to lose our lives, to give over not just the whole thing, but the small things, the little things that we clutch to. And we ask that you would do this for the glory of your name and for the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's begin our response to what we've heard. And as I say, I do hope that you will take time to respond further privately. Maybe at the end of the service, you could even spend just a couple of minutes. I'm sure the people next to you wouldn't mind just praying and thinking through some of the issues. But certainly at some point this week, do think about this. We're going to sing 